the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. I want to thank Mike, uh, Mike, Mike Lee. <laughs> had a, anyway, Mike Lee for sitting in for me yesterday as I had a medical procedure that needed to be done. So appreciate that very much, Mike Lee. Today on the program, a conversation with Mark Moyer I had on Triumph Regained, the Vietnam War from 65 to 68. That's coming up in the second hour. And we'll be covering many of the headlines from the last couple of days. So uh, stay with us as we work our way through them, beginning with Hunter Biden, who pled not guilty to misdemeanor tax charges in a federal courtroom in Delaware yesterday after U.S. District Court Judge Mary, uh, Mary, Mary Ellen uh, Norica put a plea deal, his lawyers said, reached with prosecutors on hold. In June, Biden was charged with felony gun possession and two misdemeanor counts for failing to pay taxes in 2017 and 2018. The original deal included a recommendation of probation for the tax violations, while the gun charge for illegally owning a Colt Cobra uh, 38 special gun uh, would be dropped and potentially wiped from his records if he met certain conditions laid out in court. Well, Norica, she described the the deal struck by the U.S. attorney David Weiss of Delaware as unusual and questioned why the deal contained some non-standard terms such as broad immunity from other potential charges. When she asked prosecutor Leo Weiss if there were uh, was precedent for the kind of deal proposed, he replied, no, your honor, according to The New York Times. Well, the judge asked prosecutors if Biden would be immune from prosecution for possible crimes such as violations related to representing foreign governments without registering. When they responded, no, Hunter Biden's legal team said the agreement was null and void. Well, the judge called a recess during which the prosecution and the defense agreed to reverse the scope of the plea deal. Under that revised agreement, the deal would only cover the period from 2014 to 2019, would only include conduct related to tax offenses, drug use and gun possession. However, the judge ultimately decided to delay a decision on whether to accept the revised deal, leading Biden to enter the pro forma plea of not guilty. This came as something of a surprise. The issue of whether there is an ongoing investigation into Biden was germane from the day the charges were announced. His attorney, Christopher Clark, claimed the investigation was over, but Weiss's office clearly stated in a June press release that the investigation was ongoing. Well, during the hearing, the prosecution confirmed once more to the judge that the investigation is still open. Well, in an interview with CNN reacting to the earlier breakdown among the parties, Senator Josh Hawley, the Republican from Missouri, said the surprising turn of events signaled there's potential for prosecution moving forward. It's very telling that the judge intervened here and was basically, no, I'm not going to approve some sweeping blanket deal. I mean, that tells you the charts, or rather the court, has serious concern about other potential charges here and also the scope of the deal, which has seemed outrageous from the beginning, end quote. Republicans have decried the deal as too lenient, 
Since it was announced, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has also floated a possible impeachment inquiry over allegations that the president was connected to his son's foreign business dealings. The president has denied the allegations. This is the first time the Justice Department has charged the child of a sitting president. Lots of firsts this year. We have a first former president who's been indicted and of course more news on that lawyers from the uh, former president uh, donald trump met thursday morning with special counsel jack smith's team as a potential indictment of the former president looms uh, posting later on his truth social platform uh, trump said no in, uh, indication of notice was given during the meeting regarding a pending indictment his attorney john lauro and todd blanche attorneys plural met with smith's team following the receipt of a target letter alerting trump he is a target of a special counsel investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election his lawyers were there to make the case for why they believe trump shouldn't be indicted smith was uh, present for the meeting according to sources the meeting ended after an hour Uh, An indictment would be the third one for the former president who was indicted last month on 37 criminal counts related to his handling of classified materials. He has pled not guilty to all charges. In April, he pled not guilty to a 34 count indictment from the Manhattan D.A. charging him with falsifying business records in connection with a hush money payment made to adult film actress uh, Stormy Daniels. No former or current president had ever been indicted prior to Trump being charged in the hush money case. The former president confirmed Thursday's meeting in a post on his Truth Social platform, saying my attorney had a productive meeting with the Department of Justice this morning, explaining in detail that I did nothing wrong, was advised by many lawyers, and that an indictment of me would only further destroy our country, he wrote. The target letter, which Trump said he received on the 16th of this month, mentions three federal statutes, conspiracy to commit offense or to defraud the United States, deprivation of rights under the civil rights statute, and tampering with a witness, victim, or an informant, sources familiar with the matter, told ABC News. Well, the former president confirmed the letter in a post to Truth Social. Smith was appointed in November by Attorney General Merrick Garland to oversee the investigation into efforts by the former president and his allies to overturn the results of the 2020 election, as well as Trump's handling of classified documents after leaving the presidency. He has denied all wrongdoing and has dismissed the probes as a political witch hunt. Meanwhile, House Republicans pressed Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas on his failure to secure the U.S.-Mexico border during a roughly four-hour hearing yesterday. The administration violates the law under the guise of instituting safe, orderly, and humane policies. Representative Jim Jordan, the Republican of Ohio, said at the start of the House Judiciary uh, hearing, uh, lawmakers pressed Mayorkas on a number of uh, illegal aliens that have been released into the interior of the U.S. since President Joe Biden took office, how many illegal aliens have been deported, the whereabouts of illegal aliens on America's territory uh, terrorist watch list, and whether Mayorkas previously lied to Congress. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our march through uh, some of the day's uh, headlines, actually yesterday and today, and coming up later, um, Triumph Regained with Mark Mayor, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell tripped and fell disembarking from a plane at Ronald Reagan Washington National Airport this month. Two sources familiar with the incident said the 81-year-old was not seriously hurt. He was seen later that day at the Capitol. 
Well, the fall, which has been uh, not been previously reported, occurred on the 14th of July after the flight out of Washington was canceled while everyone was on board. He was a passenger and had a face plant, apparently. Well, he's also recently been uh, using a wheelchair as a precaution when he navigates crowded airports, according to a source familiar. Well, McConnell, a polio survivor who has long struggled to navigate stairs and other obstacles, has had a difficult recent history with falls. He sustained a concussion and a cracked rib in a fall in Washington this year, and he spent six weeks away from the Senate. He fractured a shoulder in a fall in Kentucky in 2019, requiring surgery. McConnell's nearly 22nd freeze during a news conference on Wednesday renewed concerns about his overall health after the concussion. He was speaking and just stopped and for a period of about a minute just stared into the camera uh, until or into the uh, pool of reporters until his colleagues uh, who had surrounded him ushered him away. He's definitely slower with his gait, said a Republican senator who spoke on condition of anonymity because of the sensitivity of the issue. In closed door GOP meetings, he doesn't address it, the senator said, referring to health issues. His office also declined to comment. Meanwhile, Senator Dianne Feinstein appeared confused on Thursday during a routine Senate committee meeting where she began reading from her prepared remarks instead of saying I during a roll call. Well, the moment involving Feinstein, the oldest serving member of the Senate at age 90, came as the Senate Appropriations Subcommittee was taking roll ahead of a, a vote on the defense appropriations bill. When it came to Feinstein's turn to say I, as all members of the subcommittee do in order to have their votes recorded the longtime california senator seemingly froze up just say i you can hear senator patty murray uh, speaking to feinstein saying pardon me feinstein responded i patty murray reiterated instead of registering her vote feinstein launched to two remarks in favor of the bill a process that was slated to come later in the meeting after the roll call was completed feinstein was cut off by a staff member who appeared to tell the senator that the committee was still in the process of calling roll and she um, uh, was instructed by the uh, aide, just say I. Um, laughing, Feinstein then appeared to realize her mistake and said I. Well, in a statement to uh, media, the Feinstein spokesperson explained that the meeting had gotten somewhat chaotic, trying to complete all of the appropriations bills before recess. The committee's markup this morning was a little chaotic, constantly switching back and forth between statements, votes and debate and the other uh, order of bills. The senator was preoccupied, didn't realize Debate had just ended and a vote was called. She started to give a statement, was informed it was a vote and then cast the vote. Feinstein, who is uh, first elected to represent the Golden State in the Senate in 1992, announced in February that she would not be running for reelection in 2024. But it uh, is contributing to a growing conversation about whether or not uh, age should play a significant role in members of Congress and for that matter, the executive Um, in upcoming elections and if there should be tests for competency. In other news, California already struggling with an exodus of residents fleeing the state will have about the same population in 2060 as it does now and fewer people than it did just three years ago. That's according to new government projections. The forecasts released by the California Department of Finance show the Golden State's population in 2060 is estimated at 39.51 million people, which is lower than the 39.52 residents who live there in 2020. Just under 39 million people live today in California, the country's most populated state, at least for now. Just three years ago, forecasters estimated California's population in 2060 
would be 45 million. A few years earlier, the projection was over 50 million, indicating an expected population boom. Meanwhile, the latest projections show the Golden State having 40 million residents in 2050, a shocking drop from the 59.5 million residents predicted by the Department of Finance forecast in 2007, which goes to show you these forecasts are essentially worthless. Well, the difference between the two figures, 19.5 million people, is um, equivalent to the total population of New York State. California saw its first ever population decline in 2020 when the state imposed rigid lockdowns during the COVID uh, pandemic. Since then, Californians uh, continue to leave in droves, moving their homes and businesses to other parts of the country and creating problems for their former state. House Freedom Caucus members on Tuesday appeared eager for Speaker Kevin McCarthy to make good on his recent veiled impeachment threat against President Biden. And one member of the conservative group of GOP members said the leader's words marked a paradigm shift. When he uh, does speak to impeachment, it carries a tremendous amount of weight. And that's why I think the ground shifted on that a little bit when he opened up the door. Representative Bob Good, a Republican from Virginia, said after a Freedom Caucus press conference on Tuesday, I don't think there's any question that Him speaking to that has caused a paradigm shift after a series of hearings and briefings on alleged misconduct by the president and his family. McCarthy uh, said um, this is uh, rising to the level of impeachment inquiry, which provides Congress the strongest power to get the rest of the knowledge and information needed. It's the most direct comment the speaker has made about impeaching Biden so far, something the hardliners in his conference have been clamoring for since the House took the majority this year. The CEO of an artificial intelligence safety and research company warned the Senate Tuesday that artificial intelligence, AI, could be just a few years away from giving bad actors around the globe the capacity to carry out biological weapons attacks. Dario Omadai, CEO of Anthropic, told a Senate Judiciary Subcommittee that the proposed The prospect of A.I. helping people develop and deliver these weapons is a medium term risk that his company is grappling with today. Over the last six months, Anthropic, in collaboration with world class biosecurity experts, has conducted an intensive study on the potential of A.I. to contribute to the misuse of biology. Today, certain steps in bio uh, weapons produ- production rather involve knowledge that can't be found on Google or in textbooks and requires a high level of specialized expertise. This being one of the things that currently keeps us safe from attacks. He said today's AI tools can help fill in some of these steps, though they can do this incomplete and unreliably. But he said today's AI is already showing these nascent signs of danger and said his company believes it will be much closer just a few years from now. A straightforward extrapolation of today's systems to those uh, we expect to see in two to three years suggests a substantial uh, risk that AI systems will be able to fill in all the missing pieces, enabling many more actors to carry out large-scale biological attacks. He said, we believe this represents a grave threat to U.S. national security. Meanwhile, the legacy media has run wild with a cherry-picked talking point from Vice President Kamala Harris, who kicked off a cycle of misinformation about Florida's black history curriculum. Dr. William Allen, a descendant of slavery who helped author the curriculum, has said Harris' lie was quickly parroted by an agenda-driven media. They're discussing this not from the perspective of what's in the curriculum standards, but from the perspective of what they want to impose upon the national narrative, Allen continued. No one should be surprised by that. That's characteristic of our political um, era. 
Harris told the Jacksonville crowd last week that Florida's new statewide black history curriculum replaces history with lies, setting the tone for liberal pundits and reporters to scold Florida Governor DeSantis. Harris claimed middle school students in Florida will be told that enslaved people benefited from slavery. In reality, the thorough curriculum details harsh conditions endured and also explains that the slaves developed skills which, in some instances, could be applied for their personal benefit, both while enslaved and after once they were uh, freed. The reason I call the vice president's statements categorically false is because it is obvious to anyone of basic literacy that the mere grammar of the sentence in the curriculum standards to which she referred refutes her charge. Allen went on to say Hillary Clinton's widely derided remarks blaming Republicans for the heat wave. Uh, gripping the United States were indicative of a broken pol- politician and sore loser. That's what a panelist uh, said on Tuesday on on uh, Fox News. Outnumbered Clinton went viral after blaming record temperatures in the U.S. on Republicans tweeting hot enough for you. Thank the mega Republican or better yet, vote them out of office. Her social media post came in response to a tweet from a left wing think tank Center for American Progress, which stated MAGA Republicans are pouring fuel on the climate crisis fire. Lee Zeldin, the Republican who narrowly lost last year's New York gubernatorial race, said Clinton was seeking to further divide with incendiary remarks. It's rather interesting to consider how much power is being attributed to a particular voting block. Well, we're going to take a quick break here in just a moment, but we'll continue to look at some of the, uh, the headlines of the last couple of days. And then in the second hour, triumph regained as a uh, look at the Vietnam War from 65 to 68 with Mark Moyar. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Hunter Biden's plea deal with federal prosecutors, which fell apart during his first court appearance in Delaware on Wednesday, would have granted him broad immunity, protecting him from prosecution over a wide range of alleged and potential federal crimes. That's according to released documents. The son of the president was expected to plead guilty to two misdemeanor counts of willful failure to pay federal income tax as part of a deal to avoid jail time with a felony gun charge. Specifically, the legal arrangement involved both a plea agreement over the tax charges and a related pretrial diversion agreement regarding a separate felony charge of possession of a firearm by a person who is an unlawful user of an addicted uh, addicted uh, to a controlled substance. Under the, the diversion agreement, the government wouldn't charge Biden with a more serious gun charge if he pled guilty to the tax charges. Well, the judge who's presiding over the case didn't accept the plea agreement on Wednesday, questioning the deal's constitutionality, namely the diversion measure that and the immunity Biden would receive. The judge said the diversion agreement might be unconstitutional, which would mean the entire plea deal would be unconstitutional and Biden would not be getting the immunity he sought. Ultimately, he pled not guilty after the deal collapsed. Irish singer-songwriter Sinead O'Connor has died at 56. It is with great sadness that we announce the passing of our beloved Sinead, the singer's family said in a statement reported on Wednesday by the BBC. Her family and friends are devastated and have requested privacy at this very difficult time. No cause of death has been revealed. O'Connor was a longtime nonconformist. She would say that she shaved her head in response to record executives pressuring her to be conventionally glamorous, but record executives... um, said that her political and cultural stances and troubled private life often overshadowed her music. She wrote about her rise to fame, saying the media was making me out to be crazy because I wasn't acting like a pop star was supposed to act. 
It seems to me that being a pop star is almost like being in a type of prison. She survived by three of her children, her fourth child. Uh, Shane was found dead in Ireland in January of 22 after the Irish singer-songwriter notified authorities that he had gone missing. A win on Tuesday night would have sent either the United States or Netherlands to the knockout stage in the 2023 Women's World Cup, but instead, a 1-1 draw was the result in a hard-fought match. It wasn't a loss, but the United States has won 13 straight World Cup matches dating back to their 2015 victory run in France, coming into tonight's game. Well, the next match for the U.S. against Portugal on Tuesday becomes a more urgent meeting with the knockout stage now in mind. Both the U.S. and the Netherlands have four points in the group, while the former is up on goal differential. Both teams play again on Tuesday, 3 a.m. Eastern time, with the Netherlands facing Vietnam and the U.S. taking on Portugal. Well, a presentation offered by employees of the Hawaii Department of Health encourages staff to and graduate students at the University of Hawaii Center of Cognitive Behavior Therapy not to document their conversations with LGBTQ plus youth in an effort to keep parents in the dark about their child's sexual identity. The training titled Affirming Practice with LGBTQ plus Youth and obtained by um, Fox News Digital through a Freedom of Information Act request, was delivered to staff and graduate students at the university in May by two members of the Hawaii Department of Health, Health Child and Adolescent Mental Health Division Safe Spaces Committee. Be careful about what you document. Parents may be able to access the information, the presenta- presentation noted, under a slide about confidentiality. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell appeared to freeze up during a news conference with other Republican leaders following their weekly party luncheon Wednesday. Good morning, everyone. We're on a path to finish the NDAA, which is the National Defense Authorization Act this week. Uh, There's been good bipartisan cooperation and a string of, uh, he said, before trailing off and staring blankly for nearly a minute before colleagues intervened. Former CNN boss Jeff Zucker absolutely positively doesn't want to purchase the network he once ruled, he claims. Zucker, who was forced out of CNN last year ahead of a long-planned merger uh, that put the network under the control of Warner Brothers Discovery, has been long rumored to want to purchase CNN in order to regain control of the struggling network. Zucker is even sitting on a $1 billion pile of cash intended to be spent on media assets on behalf of Redbird IMI, an investment group that he currently oversees. But Zucker doesn't want to buy CNN, according to his spokesperson. Beto O'Rourke called on President Biden to confront Texas Governor Greg Abbott on Wednesday in an op-ed for the New York Times and demand that he stop this madness at the southern border. O'Rourke, who lost to Abbott in the Texas gubernatorial race in November, said it was time for Biden to step up. It's on Mr. Biden to stop this madness. In fact, promoting a human, a humane immigration and asylum system is exactly what Mr. Biden promised to do when he ran for office, he wrote, condemning Abbott's border security measures. The Department of Justice announced that it had plans to sue Abbott over the use of a floating Bowie barrier along the Rio Grande to stop illegal immigration into the state. O'Rourke praised the Department of Justice lawsuit against Abbott as a good first step. Meanwhile, House Speaker McCarthy said during an interview this week that the Republican-controlled chamber is moving closer toward an impeachment inquiry against President Joe Biden. Over allegations, he accepted millions of dollars in bribes from foreign countries. McCarthy's remarks come after Senator Chuck Grassley 
uh, released an FBI-generated FD-1023 form last week in which a human confidential source told the FBI that Burisma co-founder and CEO um, Mykola uh, claimed that he was coerced by then-Vice President Biden and his son into paying millions of dollars in bribes in exchange for their help in pressuring Ukraine to fire a prosecutor who was investigating Burisma. The allegations include that Uh, The Biden family members received payments from foreign companies and that the Justice Department, according to IRS whistleblowers, has treated the Biden family differently in an investigation into Hunter Biden, McCarthy noted in an interview with Sean Hannity. Delaware U.S. Attorney David Weiss, who is the lead criminal investigator into Hunter Biden's gun and tax crimes, is set to testify before the House of Representatives in September or October The Department of Justice has accepted the invitation from House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan for Weiss to testify at a public hearing in the coming months. Last week, two IRS whistleblowers, Gary Shapley and Joseph Ziegler, they testified under oath that Hunter Biden received special treatment in the investigation into his financial dealings led by Weiss. They said that Hunter's tax charges should have been a felony, but that political pressures led to the first son's sweetheart deal instead. That deal seems to be crumbling uh, in recent days. A close associate to the Biden family appears to have spent years working in the Delaware U.S. Attorney's Office, including during the months when whistleblowers said uh, the office took up an investigation of Hunter Biden. Alexander Mackler served as press secretary for Joe Biden's Senate office and later as legal counsel in his vice presidential office. Mackler managed the late Ben uh, Biden's successful campaign for Delaware Attorney General in 2010. And Mackler served on the Biden-Harris transition team in 2020, helping the Biden administration create the blueprint for its Justice Department. Mackler also appeared to have a close personal relationship with Hunter Biden. In emails found on Hunter Biden's laptop, Mackler's corresponded frequently with Hunter and his business associates and even referred to Hunter Biden fondly as a brother in October of 2018. Mackler was working under U.S. Attorney David Weiss in the office at that time, according to his LinkedIn page, which lists him as having worked in the Delaware U.S. Attorney's Office from August 2016 to May 2019. To say that Mackler was tight with the Bidens would seem to be a massive understatement. A very close personal friend and aide to the Biden family appears to have worked uh, for years in the Delaware U.S. Attorney's Office under Weiss, including when the Hunter Biden probe began. Two-thirds of voters say Joe Biden is too old to run for a second term as America's president, and he should step aside so younger Democrats can duke it out for the party's nomination. A DailyMail.com tip poll shows fully 67% of respondents said the 80-year-old president should not run again in 2024 amid concern over the gaffes, trips, and falls linked to his age, such as last month's tumble at the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado. A whopping three-quarters of respondents are clamoring to see him in a TV debate with the two Democrats who've already thrown their hats into the ring, Williamson and Kennedy. Additionally, 77% of voters from both sides of the aisle want to witness this epic showdown. Of course, the likelihood of this actually happening is about as slim as Biden pulling off a cartwheel. The Democratic National Committee has already made it clear that they have no plans for a primary debate. The Biden administration formally filed a lawsuit in federal court in Texas on Monday. The Department of Justice announced the suit was imminent if Governor Abbott didn't meet a Monday deadline to remove that boy barrier I mentioned earlier in the Rio Grande River in Eagle Pass 
Governor Abbott did not blink. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre was asked about the Biden border crisis. Naturally, she blamed Governor Abbott for the chaos. Uh, she accused Texas Governor Abbott of sowing chaos by taking steps to secure the state's borders, absent action by the Biden administration. The operative words being absent action by the Biden administration. A Russian jet fighter damaged a U.S. MQ-9 Reaper drone over Syria by releasing flares close to the American aircraft, the U.S. military said Tuesday. The confrontation took place Sunday morning local time and follows similar episodes that U.S. officials say are part of a Russian campaign to pressure American forces to cut back on their military operations in that region. The U.S. drone managed to limp back to its base in the region, but its propeller was damaged. According to a statement issued Tuesday by Lieutenant General Alexis something, the top U.S. Air Force commander in the region, the uh, episode occurred when the Russian plane flew within a few meters of the drone, which was on a mission against Islamic State, and released flares from a position directly overhead. On the 23rd of July, Russian military aircraft deployed flares damaging the MQ-9 while conducting a a defeat ISIS mission. The U.S. has around 900 troops in eastern Syria assisting in the fight against IS, while Russia has a military presence in northwestern Syria as part of its mission to support Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, Triumph Regained with Mark Moyar. That's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. Well, CNN came face-to-face with rampant crime in San Francisco. The shoplifting problem has become so bad in San Francisco that while reporting on the issue, CNN witnessed three thefts in the span of 30 minutes. At the start of the segment, heavy chains and padlocks are shown locking up the freezer section to prevent theft. Just one example of the extreme measures stores are taking to protect their merchandise. Months earlier, CNN reported that the numbers don't support store claims that shoplifting is a national crisis. Well, here's what uh, Anna Maja uh, saw at San Francisco's Richmond area Walgreens, the worst spot of all 9,000 U.S. Walgreens for theft per the company. Uh, They watched three and grabbed... uh, a video of this of one shoplifter walk out right in front of the CNN broadcast. Well, long gone are the days of spontaneous holidays overseas. Beginning in 2024, the European Union will require visitors to get pre-approval via the European Travel Information and Authorization System. And that goes for summer jet setters from the U.S. before securing tickets, lodging or reservation at that trendy hotspot. Vacationers will need to submit for an ETIAS application for approximately $8. It's a visa. Once you're approved for travel, the authorization entitles visitors to stay in European countries that require ETIAS for up to 90 days within any 180-day period, and travelers must be in possession of the valid form during their entire stay. According to the document, most applications should be processed within minutes, but in case uh, an application takes longer, decisions will be sent within four days or up to 14 days if the applicant is asked to provide additional documentation. May we see your papers. More Americans today than a decade ago rate uh, their community activities, hobbies and recreational activities and money as extremely or very important to them. The importance of one's work to employed adults has also increased over this period. At the same time, religion or faith has become less important to people while there has been no meaningful change in how much they value their family, friends and health. 
Christian Post reported while religion fell by 7% from 65 to 58% over the comparison period, hobbies or recreational activities increased as a priority by 13% over that same period. LeBron James' son, Bronny, is in stable condition after suffering cardiac arrest during practice at USC. How is it uh, that some of the healthiest people on the planet are experiencing cardiac arrest? Sports Illustrated reports that Bronny James, son of Los Angeles Lakers star LeBron James, was hospitalized after suffering a cardiac arrest during a workout on Tuesday. Bronny is now in stable condition and no longer in ICU. Suffering a health scare like that is a lot to deal with at any age, but especially for a kid who is set to begin his freshman year of college at USC. We ask for respect and privacy for the James family, and we will update media when there's more information, a spokesperson said. For the family, Hunter Biden pleaded. Well, we've already gone over that. Repeat it again. On Wednesday morning, Hunter Biden appeared in a Delaware. We went over that. Let's see. The Federal Reserve resumed uh, lifting interest rates Wednesday with a quarter percentage point increase that will bring them to a 22 year high. The unanimous decision to raise the benchmark federal funds. Um, to a range of 5.25% and 5.5% ended a brief pause in rate increases last month as officials debate whether they have done enough to combat inflation. It marks the 11th increase since March of last year when they lifted rates uh, from near zero. The Fed hasn't uh, been this aggressive with rate hikes since the early 1980s when it also was battling extraordinarily high inflation and a sputtering economy. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas once again testified to House of Representatives on Wednesday, and it once again was filled with moments that leave you shaking your head. At the outset, Representative Jerry Nadler, the Democrat from New York, the ranking member of the Judiciary Committee, said Republicans were wrong on all fronts when it comes to their criticisms against Mayorkas for his handling of the border crisis. Not only have historically high illegal border crossings under the Biden administration proved the border has been open, but Border Patrol agents themselves have characterized the border as open. Jerry Nadler uh, says, my Republican colleagues claim the border is open. Is the border open? Secretary Mayorkas said, no, it is not. Nadler, thank you, Mr. Secretary. The border is not open. Hmm. Official uh, delegations from Russia and China are set to attend North Korea's 70th anniversary celebration of armistice that halted the 1950 to 53 Korean War in a display of diplomatic um, uh, partnership with the Kim Jong-un regime. Russia's delegation, led by Defense Minister Sergei Shogu, arrived in Pyongyang on Tuesday evening and was greeted by the senior North Korean officials that included Defense uh, Ministry Kang Sun-nam, reported the North States media on Wednesday. A statement released by Russia's defense ministry uh, said Mr. Shogu held a meeting with Mr. Kang for talks he said would help strengthen cooperation between our defense departments. North Korea has been preparing huge celebrations of the anniversary that are likely to be capped off by a military parade in the capital, Pyongyang, where Kim Jong-un could showcase his most powerful nuclear-capable missiles designed rather to target neighboring rivals, and the U.S. Well, Bloomberg points out that given that both North Korea and Russia are subject to U.N. sanctions, both seek to conceal exactly how much trade is going on. But there are numerous signs that active activity is picking up. There are also indications of increased activity with China after the two countries reopened their main rail link last year that had been closed since COVID. 
Mexico authorities seized a fake U.S. Border Patrol pickup truck that was being used by smugglers in an attempt to sneak 17 Mexican nationals across the border. The white Ford F-150 was stopped by local police, a remote area in the Mexican border city of Tijuana, on Saturday. Investigators found that the pickup truck was uh, used by smugglers to pressure migrants into believing that traveling aboard the vehicle ensured easy entry into the U.S. They were promised that they would not have to present legal documents and that they would not be subjected to revisions. The former U.S. Army soldier fled his uh, post in Afghanistan and was subsequently captured by the Taliban. We're talking about Bo Bergdahl, his desertion conviction. It's been thrown out. The former U.S. Army soldier who pled guilty to desertion after leaving his post while deployed in Afghanistan and was subsequently captured and tortured by the Taliban had his court-martial conviction vacated on Tuesday. The ruling by U.S. District Judge Reggie Walton of Washington, D.C., said that military judge Jeffrey Nance, who presided over the court-martial of Bergdahl, failed to disclose that he had applied to the executive branch for a job as an immigration judge, creating a potential conflict of interest. In 2009, he walked away from his post in Afghanistan and was captured by the Taliban and held for five years. Some of his federal uh, uh, fellow soldiers were injured trying to rescue him. And the rest of the story you are probably well familiar with. It cost a great deal to restore him. And under the Obama administration, what was thought to be very serious um, uh, charges to follow didn't quite pan out that way. Well, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and coming up uh, in uh, the next hour of our program, we're going to talk with Mark Moyar, who is the author of Triumph Regained, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968, and we'll also continue our march through some of the day's headlines as well. So we're looking forward to uh, uh, to resuming that. But first, a conversation with Mark Moyar. Uh, We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest is Mark Moyer. He is the William P. Harris Chair of Military History at Hillsdale College and the author of Triumph Reimagined, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968. It is the second in a trilogy on that war. He has recently recently written an article uh, that answered the question why America should pursue a strategy most likely to end the war in Ukraine at an acceptable cost. Uh, The new piece in the American Spectator draws on the history of the Vietnam War and shows how the fog of war can impact strategic decision making. He joins us today to talk about that new book and where we stand in the war with Ukraine or war, I should say, on Ukraine. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. You know, it's so interesting, the connection that you make with the war strategizing that took place in the Vietnam War and uh, the decisions that are being made now and the impressions given by our leaderships with regard to the war in Ukraine with Russia. Uh, Talk a little bit about the connection that you see in terms of leadership and how we can be misguided uh, unintentionally, perhaps, uh, and how we can learn something from Vietnam. Yeah, so those are excellent questions, and I'll preface this by saying and we have to be very careful about drawing parallels because usually situations have some resemblance, but, but oftentimes they also have a lot of differences. But case of Ukraine, I think, is different in that uh, it's less clear, actually, how this is 
important to U.S. national interests. In Vietnam, one of the things I found, which ran against the conventional wisdom, is actually there was a strong strategic rationale, but President Johnson didn't do a good job of explaining it to the American people because he was focused on his domestic agenda. Now, President Biden, I think he too has not really done a great job of explaining this war. If you asked Americans, why are we sending so much money there? I think a lot of them would scratch their heads. Now, there's a a case you can make, uh, although I think it's in general a tougher sell because uh, Russia is no longer a superpower. In Vietnam, we were dealing with Soviets and Chinese, both superpowers. And uh, so there's more, I think it's more of a humanitarian and moral argument in Ukraine, which has some merits, but, but I think it's harder to convince the American people it's worth our, our blood and treasure. I think one of the interesting aspects of these two conflicts, one that we were directly involved in, the other that we're helping to supply in order to avoid becoming directly involved in, were errors made in leadership, errors in judgment that are, in Vietnam at least, only now um, coming to light. Uh, you wrote Triumph Reimagined as part of a trilogy to perhaps help us better understand what happened there as well as what could have happened there had uh, decisions been made uh, in favor of victory. Uh, explain to us why it's important to look back and to consider where uh, errors were made and how the information that was uh, those decisions were made on was flawed um, that led to um, a decision that ultimately meant we, we lost that conflict. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there are certain, I think, eternal truths in war. And so we study history to uh, above all, to understand those. And in the case of Vietnam, you know, one of the enduring truths, uh, and this was first really articulated well by the German military theorist Karl von Clausewitz, is that the uh, the concept of the fog of war, that essentially there is so much going on that you don't know, or you think you know, but you get it wrong. And people, some people have th- thought, well, with modern technology, we know much more. We, uh, but Vietnam, there was a lot of advanced technology, and yet 50 years later, we now are seeing that much of what people thought about the war at the time was wrong. And you had then, as you do now, you had a bunch of pundits and journalists who were professing to know all sorts of things. And uh, it turns out a great deal of that is wrong. And, of course, part of it is that your enemy wants you to uh, misperceive things so that you you commit errors. So that's one of the biggest, uh, I think, lessons that we should be paying attention to as as we are listening to people telling us how well uh, the Ukrainians are maybe fighting. You ask a a series of important questions in your article that appeared uh, in the uh, American Spectator, and you suggest that these are questions that should be seriously considered as we move forward. And people across the political spectrum are skeptical about the massive aid that we're giving to Ukraine, not suggesting we don't support the effort, but questioning whether or not there is a U.S. interest worthy of that kind of investment. You ask, with the population more than three times the size of Ukraine's, can Russia ultimately prevail through bloody attrition? How much aid will other countries contribute to the combatants in the next year? What plausible conditions will uh, convince both sides to agree to peace? These are important questions. Are our leaders answering them uh, for the American people? And perhaps more importantly, do they have good answers to those questions that will guide them in the political and military decisions they'll be making moving forward? 
presumably in an effort to avoid a conflict where the United States is directly involved. Yes, well, there's, uh, of course, a lot we don't know um, about what's going on internally within the White House, although the team that President Biden assembled doesn't have a lot of great military thinkers in it, which is also what President Johnson had. He hired Robert McNamara, Secretary of Defense, who was a, an automobile executive who really didn't know that much about the military. Uh, it does seem that people were hoping that the uh, Russia would have given up by now because of the losses they're taking. And I'm not sure they really figured out how ultimately they're going to work things out. Uh, you know, the, the Russians, again, sometimes we tend to assume they think like we do, but Vladimir Putin clearly has shown he's not all that concerned about the number of casualties he takes, uh, and which is a, a bit of a foreign idea to us. But if you look in Russia's history, uh, you know, World War II, they uh, they didn't fight very well at the beginning, but eventually, through superior numbers, they just wore the Germans down. And it seems from what we're seeing from Putin is that he figures that uh, because he has a larger population, that he is eventually going to uh, just overpower the Ukrainians. And so for that reason, I think it is in our interest to try to uh, find some encourage both sides to to reach some peaceful resolution before it gets to a complete Ukrainian defeat. Well, again, returning to the book just released in January, Triumph Regained, uh, this is uh, the second in a trilogy. The first was released, uh, Triumph Forsaken, uh, released some time ago, the first volume of the three. You challenged the prevailing academic orthodoxy with regard to um, the prosecution of the Vietnam War. Why this series and what motivated you to revisit uh, the series with information that may not have been available some years back? I first got interested in this topic because I started meeting Vietnam veterans and they did not uh, conform to the stereotypes I was seeing on television. They weren't disillusioned, bedraggled, uh, suicidal, homeless, etc., and so that got me thinking, you know, what else about Vietnam have we has been misrepresented to us? And I spent, you know, spent now 30 some years doing this and have become more convinced than ever that most of the conventional narrative, which was basically produced by the anti-war movement, uh, is fundamentally flawed. And so this book, I pick up where the left leaves off as U.S. troops come in in 1965 and find, again, there's just a huge number of myths out there that have been propagated. And uh, perhaps the most rewarding part of all of this is I get to hear from a lot of veterans who, you know, write writing to me and say, I'm glad somebody finally got the, the truth out about this because so much has been misrepresented. We're talking this afternoon with Mark Moyer. He is the William P. Harris Chair of Military History at Hillsdale College and the author of Triumph Reimagined, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968. We'll continue our conversation in a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast.
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Mark Moyer. He is the author of Triumph Reimagined, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968. Why did America go to war in Vietnam, and what did our nation hope to achieve in this conflict? Yeah, thanks, Georgine. The, the fundamental reason was to contain communism, and you know, that part of the story in itself is well known. But what was controversial is whether or not we actually needed to go into Vietnam to do that. And there's been a lot of people who've dismissed the idea that that the future of Asia was at stake. And they point to the fact that after the war in 1975, most of the other countries don't follow the communism. And they use that to say, well, this shows there was no threat. And my counter argument to that is, well, 1975 is 10 years after we go in. And so you can't just assume that what happened then would happen in 1965. And so I go to show how, in fact, in 1965, there was a huge threat of communist expansion. And it's actually American involvement in Vietnam that will save most of Asia from communism. So you would argue that South Vietnam was, in fact, a vital interest to the United States at that time? It was, yes. And then as U.S. intervention causes changes, it saves uh, at least to the overthrow of communism in Indonesia. It causes the Chinese to turn against the North Vietnamese and the Soviets. Uh, as those things happen, then yes, South Vietnam is no longer as important to American interests. I do think it still was harmful to let them fall, and it led also to the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, which killed 2 million people. But uh, in terms of the broader objective, we are able to save most of East Asia, which has great ramifications today because that is now the number one battleground for our competition with China, and we've been able to hang on to all of these countries thanks to Vietnam. What was the status of the war when American ground troops first entered the fight in 1965? At that point, the North Vietnamese seemed to be on the verge of victory, and they had launched a large invasion of the South in early 1965, which has also been poorly understood. But uh, so the Americans are, are rushed in to try to save the day, and there's a couple of decisive battles that take place starting in August of 1965 with Operation Starlight. And in each case, the Americans prevail, and this will then force the North Vietnamese to back off and shift to a war of attrition. One of the things I thought was um, most interesting in the book, and many of us believed this before you wrote it or before new information was made available, Um, But you write that the consensus view of the Vietnam War tends to depict the United States military intervention as a hopeless folly and immoral war of choice that was doomed to failure and ultimately weakened our nation and undermined American interests around the world. Um, You argue, and I think rightly, that this view is wrong. Explain why that's wrong. And again, I think that might be surprising to some of our listeners who uh, followed this at the time uh, in the... uh, midst of the war protests and under uh, the the leadership that seemed to be vacillating. Mm -hmm. Yes, the part of the one argument you will hear about why the U.S. went in was that it was uh, that the U.S., Lyndon Johnson, were trying to uh, kind of show off and just wield American power to uh, intimidate others. But 
we now know clearly from what's going on that, that Lyndon Johnson really did not want to fight in Vietnam, and he's forced into it by this North Vietnamese offensive in 1965. And we've also been told that the South Vietnamese government was corrupt and inept, and they were just hopeless, and that it was simply foolish as well as immoral to support them against the noble Ho Chi Minh uh, of North Vietnam, who was really more of a nationalist than a communist. And that whole line is also, uh, I debunk that in uh, both Triumph Forsaken and Triumph Regained, uh, that communists were actually real communists who imposed Marxist-Leninist ideology, killed lots of people to do that. And our allies in the South were uh, certainly by no means as brutal. Now, was there some corruption? Yes. But I, l- I like to compare it to Korea, where at the same at the same time you have a South Korea, which has been maligned for being corrupt and autocratic. And if you look today, South Korea is one of the freest and most affluent countries in the world. And you need only look to North Korea to see what happens when you use a Marxist-Leninist system instead of a liberal democratic system. You argue, um, and we talked about it a moment ago, that the war was a strategic necessity, but that it could have ended victoriously had President Johnson um, heeded the advice of his generals. Instead, he listened to um, others who advised him to take a, a different course. And we sort of edged toward victory at one point, and then, the, then he pulled back. To, uh, again, I, I think this is important because it helps us to understand the pressures, I suppose, of uh, leadership, uh, Biden in this case, Johnson uh, then, in making decisions that have to appeal to the public, um, trying to find the right voices to listen to and moving forward. Can you talk a little bit about that strategic um, win that we avoided because of decisions that were made and voices that were heeded and others that were ignored? Yes, the uh, Lyndon Johnson from early on in 1965 is being told by his generals that the strategy that he and Secretary of Defense McNamara are looking to pursue, uh, which is a basically just defend South Vietnam, is going to uh, lead to great difficulty in the future because basically you're allowing the North Vietnamese to keep uh, attacking you indefinitely as long as they want to. And so they provo- proposed a number of measures outside South Vietnam, including cutting the Ho Chi Minh Trail in Laos, which is the main logistical line, and uh, ramping up the bombing of North Vietnam. And McNamara repeatedly convinces Johnson that these things are not going to work and they're going to needlessly provoke uh, the opponent, our opponents in China and the Soviet Union. We now see from what we know from the North Vietnamese side, also some things that have come out from the Chinese and Soviets, that, that in fact, these measures would have worked and that uh, there was not this actual prospect of China and the Soviet Union coming in and they really wanted no part of a war against the United States. So there were, there were indeed huge opportunities missed to pursue strategies that would have either, A, just caused the North Vietnamese to capitulate, or at minimum would have made the war uh, a much easier conflict for the U.S. military to handle. How did domestic politics and American public opinion impact the conduct of the war? Well, initially, the war is popular among most groups of the American population. That 
the most interesting segment in this period is is the college campuses because up Mm -hmm. until the middle of 67 the college campuses are generally supportive of the war and then you see this sudden shift in the middle of 1967 which i attribute to two things one is the baby boomers are are arriving on force and then uh the other is that they changed the draft rules to make it harder for college students to avoid military service. And so suddenly you see this great upsurge in campus protest, which claims to be sort of morally up, upright, but it's really motivated by uh, self-interest. Uh, but the rest of the country actually still is remains supportive through all the way through the end of 1968. And it, it's not the case, uh, as we've often been told, that the Tet Offensive in January 68 kind of turned the country against the war. Uh, the country is actually about as supportive in late 1968 as they are when the U.S. troops first arrived, which is especially remarkable given that Lyndon Johnson really didn't do a, a good job of explaining anything to the American people. Are we finding that um, under the current administration with the president, and you made mention of this earlier, the president is failing to really explain our involvement in Ukraine and to help the American people understand why so much of our treasure is being uh, given to that conflict. Do do people understand? Is the president doing a good job or has he fallen short in explaining um, our involvement there? Yeah, I think he has fallen short and in a number of reasons, of course, in general, he's not been very communicative uh, with the media or anybody else. And, uh, you know, he's at a period in his career where I think, uh, you know, it's safe to say he doesn't have a, the energy you would want of a uh, you know, commander in chief. Uh, I think also you know, it is, you know, a hard case to, to make um, because, you know, the United States, uh, you know, has other allies in Western Europe. And I think we, we presumably, you know, if the Russians were actually trying to attack one of the NATO countries, uh, we'd see a different response. But I think um, it's hard to c- explain why we would need, especially the U.S. itself, to get directly involved in Ukraine. And uh, people, I think, rightly wondering why the Europeans can't handle most of this themselves. They've got plenty of money, uh, but many of them you know, would rather not commit their own resources. But I do think it makes sense for, for us to expect more out of the Europeans. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break. We'll continue our conversation. Again, talking with Mark Moyer. He's the William P. Harris Chair of Military History at Hillsdale College and author of Triumph Reimagined, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 68. The second in a trilogy of books on the subject. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Mark Moyer. He is the William P. Harris Chair of Military History at Hillsdale College and author of Triumph Reimagined, the second in a trilogy of books on the Vietnam War, this covering the period between 1965 and 1968. What were the consequences of America's defense of South Vietnam for the broader Cold War? Uh, did it have much impact on that um, on that uh, ongoing uh, cold conflict? Well, it's certainly of great benefit in Asia in terms of preventing the fall of other nations. It does, in the short term, have a negative impact in 1975 when America fails to stick up for its ally and it gives 
the Soviets and the Chinese reason to believe that America is weak and can be exploited. And they, they, in the, during the Carter period, we see a lot of Russian advances. I think there's some parallel there too, with what we saw after the fall of Afghanistan. I think America generally came across as very weak in, in how we let our allies go, which I think probably did something to encourage Vladimir Putin to go into uh, Ukraine. Do you believe the war was a worthy but improperly executed enterprise? Um, Should we have been there? Uh, And you've already made the point that we could have left as victors as opposed to a failed effort. Your thoughts about our role in Vietnam? Yes. One of the interesting things about the debates over Vietnam is almost no one, the people who say it was a big folly, none of them will claim, will argue that stopping communism in Asia was unimportant. And uh, it'd be very hard to argue that, in fact, because if you look at the world then, and certainly today, Asia is the area of most dynamic growth in terms of people and wealth and power. And so we, as a country, I think, had a great... uh, interest in shaping the course of events there. And we did ultimately, they said, prevent most of those countries from falling to communism. I think if you had seen Malaya, Thailand, Indonesia, the Philippines, Japan, uh, following the route of North Korea or looking like Vietnam afterwards, uh, Asia would be a vastly different place. We'd have a lot fewer trading partners. We'd have to deal with a more aggressive China. And uh, so I think in terms of the the continued struggle for control of the world and economic power, it's been uh, hugely important that we've been able to keep most of these Asian countries uh, on our side. We're currently um, facing the possibility of a conflict with China that's allied itself with Russia, and we don't know to what extent and what that will ultimately uh, ultimately mean. Can you just speak uh, about our national security, whether or not Vietnam, and for that matter, our response in Ukraine and maybe even Afghanistan, has informed our would-be enemies, uh, future uh, opponents, Uh, about the United States' resolve to defend itself, its willingness to win a conflict should one arise in in, uh, the Asian area with with Taiwan um, and so on? Yeah, I think one of the the biggest challenges and one of the things that the president has not done a good job of explaining is, is the reality that China is our number one strategic rival now. And to the degree we pour money into Ukraine, that is going to uh, reduce our ability to deal with China. And the Chinese seem to be catching on to this. And I think they figure that by giving some more aid to uh, Russia, that they can uh, drain our resources even more. I think they figure they don't need to provide the same level of support. So it's a net a net positive for for them, and uh, you know we have you know another difficulty we have. I think is Biden has put America's credibility on the line in Ukraine, and if the United States wavers, um, or if say we get to the point where 
you might have to send American troops in to save Ukraine, which would be a very difficult decision. Uh, that is going to send signals to China. And I think certainly if they perceive the United States as being weak, that could be a trigger for them to invade Taiwan, which, uh, you know, Taiwan, I think, is much more important to the U.S. than uh, Ukraine mm-hmm. is. Yeah, but just the the minerals and uh, the resources they have there, which, of course, China would like to exploit as well. I know your first volume um, on Vietnam history, Triumph Forsaken, created quite a stir in academia. Uh, explain that um, that stir, if you will, and uh, this second in the series and then the forthcoming third in the series, if you believe that will also challenge some of the assumptions and conclusions that have been drawn about that period of U.S. history and war. My interpretation in Triumph Forsaken and in the new book, Triumph Regained, is uh, runs contrary to the left-wing orthodoxy that has come to dominate American perceptions. And you had many of the people who've written about Vietnam were people who were protesters during the 1960s, and so they have a especially strong vested interest in the conventional wisdom. So a lot of them were not at all happy to have somebody telling them that this was all wrong, and it certainly had negative consequences in terms of uh, a career in academia. And uh, and unfortunately, it's not just limited to Vietnam War, but I know a lot of uh, very smart people who have PhDs, but who were seen as being too conservative and who ended up not teaching it at all in academic world and having to go elsewhere. It's part of a you know, just broader problem we have where essentially the college campus has become a one-party state that does not really have an interest in free and open debate, despite all of the lip service they pay to the idea of diversity. Yeah, the most recent example, a judge on a, on a law school campus that was uh, literally shouted down by a member of the faculty. Well, the the book, um, the books, I should say, uh, the two in the series and the the third that's coming really do help us to better understand what happened there and perhaps to think about the challenges that leadership has in in making decisions about how to prosecute a war, the voices that they're choosing to listen to. Any advice based on our experience in Vietnam that you would give to President Biden uh, with regard to how he makes decisions about how we're going to support the, the, the Ukrainians in this conflict and the potential for conflict of our own? Uh, in in the future with uh, with China or for that matter some other country. Mm-hmm. I certainly recommended that they solicit a, a broad range of views and listen closely to what the generals have to say. Uh, now generals are not always infallible, but oftentimes they know things that the civilians don't quite understand. And if you have a president like Abraham Lincoln who really understood military affairs, that's one thing, but we don't have that. So you need uh, a president, A, and also some advisors who can help him comprehend all of this information and and not have a reflexive disdain of the military, which has often been a problem for the Democrats ever since uh, the Vietnam War. Well, I thank you so much for the book and for talking with us about it here today. I really appreciate your time and your uh, your effort. 
Well, thanks very much, Georgine, for having me on. Great, great talking with you. Thank you. Again, Mark Moyer, the William P. Harris Chair of Military History at Hillsdale College and author of Triumph Reimagined, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break and we will return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Wanted to try to get through some of these headlines that we missed yesterday. I had one of my infusions that comes every eight weeks, so I was out of the office. Do want to thank Mike Lee for uh, filling in for me. Well, again, taking a look at some of the day's headlines, Hillary Clinton is blaming MAGA Republicans for the climate. Evidently, those MAGA deplorables continue to live rent-free in Hillary Clinton's mind as she attributes every evil within not only the U.S., but apparently the entire world to roughly half of the American population. Case in point is her social media post blaming MAGA Republicans for causing climate change. Her post includes a link to the leftist climate climate alarmist outfit Cap Action, which claims that uh, this is the hottest summer on record because of climate change. That's not a, a true Um, assessment, however. So was this Hillary responding to the New York Times, which published a column just over a week ago calling on leaders to politicize the weather? Or was this just her feeding her usual uh, cravings for a bit of attention? Maybe the answer is both. But either way, it's time for Hillary to um, perhaps stay silent on issues that she doesn't quite get right. Well, the great solar panel scam, a recent report from Environmental Progress, found that the carbon footprint of solar panels is three times bigger than previously thought and even wouldn't compare favorably to natural gas. Well, this surprising finding has everything to do with the manufacture of solar panels in China, where the vast majority of them are made. The report notes that due to uh, China being rather opaque regarding environmental data surrounding its solar panel industry, the U.N. Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and International Energy Agency have been producing carbon emissions numbers based upon bad data. So the huge jump in solar power in the name of curbing carbon emissions hasn't exactly had the desired or advertised effect. UPS and Teamsters reached a tentative agreement. A pending massive strike has been averted as the UPS and Teamsters have agreed to a new collective bargaining agreement. With the August 1st deadline looming, 340,000 UPS workers walking off the job would have produced a significant negative economic impact for the country. According to UPS CEO Carl Tome, this agreement continues to reward UPS full and part-time employees with industry-leading pay and benefits while retaining the flexibility we need to stay competitive, serve our customers, and keep our business strong. Both part-time and full-time UPS workers will receive a boost in pay, rising um, to an average uh, top rate of $21 per hour and $49 per hour, respectively. Expect uh, package shipment prices to rise as well. And is the Department of Justice illegally funding red flag laws in red states? Well, congressional Republicans are accusing the administration of illegally using taxpayer dollars to promote anti-Second Amendment legislation in program states in violation of the law the president himself signed. More prime age Americans are working than pre-pandemic. The number of Americans aged 25 to 54 working or seeking jobs has hit a 20-year high which is helping to make up for the growing number of baby boomers retiring. 
The numbers of prime age Americans currently employed now exceed pre-pandemic numbers by nearly 2.2 million. Leading this surge are increasing numbers of women taking jobs. Now, 77.8% of prime age women are employed, which is the highest on record. Meanwhile, the percentage of prime age men now working has hit its highest level since 2002 at 83.5%. One of the negative consequences for the increasing number of prime age women in the workplace is a decreasing birth rate as 2022 saw 655,000 fewer births than the peak numbers set in 2007. Well, the Senate on Tuesday added an important amendment to the current national defense bill being negotiated. Agreed upon by the vast majority of senators, the amendment would ban China from purchasing agricultural land in the U.S. Iowa Senator Joni um, Ernst rather defended the amendment. America is not for sale. There is no ignoring that China is in our backyard and buying up land near our critical military installations. She further noted, I have worked to close the loophole that have allowed the Chinese Communist Party to encroach on our uh, form- farmland. And today I am proud to see these efforts are helping to strengthen our national security and combat our foreign adversaries. As Iowa farmers know, food security is national security, end quote. Well, it's the daughters of uh, the American Revolution, emphasis on daughters. Just a decade ago, this story would have been regarded as satirical. But in 2023 and the fringe gender bending craziness that's become mainstream. Now, the daughters of the American Revolution or D.A.R. find themselves in the midst of a rainbow mayhem. At issue is a new bylaw passed by the recent uh, a Continental Congress that could effectively allow for the entry of males into the all-female organization. Apparently, the greater cultural confusion over defining a woman is now confusing the daughters. Hunter Biden's sweetheart plea deal on gun and tax charges were torpedoed by a judge in a sensational courtroom dust-up. Mitch McConnell blanked out during a presser, and a UFO whistleblower alleges a multi-decade cover-up in congressional testimony. A mom who let her child play at a park has finally been removed from the unfit parent registry. Hawaii's health department trains future therapists to conceal conversations with LGBT youth from their parents. A Chinese coach, or rather a Christian coach, has been fired for stating views on obvious sex differences. And Anheuser-Busch, they laid off more than 400 um, corporate workers as the Bud Light backlash continues. The Senate voted to keep China from buying U.S. farmland. An outspoken Chinese foreign minister has been purged by Xi Jinping. Matt Gates moved to end birthright citizenship to stop abuse in the immigration system. And the president again claims a role in civil rights activism in the 1960s. That was false. Uh, Biden's dog commander has bitten Secret Service officers 10 times in four months. Records have shown. And a judge struck down the Biden administration asylum restrictions. Obama's chef who drowned while paddleboarding wasn't wearing a life vest No foul play is expected, according to police. And a Pew uh, poll shows the majority of Americans now favor government and big tech censorship. And on this day in history, 1794, French revolutionary leader Maximilien Robespierre is overthrown and placed under arrest. He's executed the following day. 1866, Cyrus W. Field finishes laying out the first successful underwater telegraph cable between North America and Europe. A previous cable in 1858 burned out after only a few weeks. 1909, during the first official test of the U.S. Army's first airplane, Orville Wright flies himself and a passenger, Lieutenant Frank Lamb, 
about uh, above, rather, Fort Myer, Virginia, for one hour and 12 minutes. President Lyndon Baines Johnson in 1967 appoints the Kerner Commission to assess the cause of urban rioting. The same day, black militant H. Rap Brown tells a press conference in Washington that violence was as American as cherry pie. 1996, terror strikes the Atlanta Olympics as a pipe bomb explodes at Centennial Olympic Park, directly killing one person and injuring 111. Anti-government extremist Eric Rudolph would later plead guilty to the bombing, exonerating security guard Richard Jewell, who had been wrongly suspected. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, the White House announces that North Korea had returned the remains of what were believed to be U.S. servicemen killed during the Korean War. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Good night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.